Hello and welcome to Retrospecticus, a Simpsons and History podcast. You're listening to episode 27, Principal Unrepresented Nations and Peoples Organisation. Hey, hey, listeners! I'm Gareth Hirons. And I'm Tom Williamson. And welcome to Retrospecticus, the Simpsons and modern history together at last. In each edition, we'll discuss an episode of The Simpsons and a major historical happening from the time the episode first aired in the US. You'll go where we go. Scan who we scan. Smell sodium tetrasulfate bonding with chlorophyll when we smell <laughs> sodium tetrasulfate bonding with chlorophyll. Don't like to make that easy for myself, do I? No. And today we'll be talking about, well, I'll be talking about Season 2, Episode 14, Principal Charming. And that first aired on February the 14th, 1991. Aww, it's Valentine's Day for this very vaguely love-themed episode. (laughs) And I'm going to be talking about the United Nations Unrepresented Nations and Peoples Organisation. It emerged to represent indigenous peoples, minorities, unrecognised states and occupied territories. It should come as no surprise that it came about as the Soviet Union was breaking up, as the Baltic states were founder members. It was founded in The Hague, the Netherlands, on February 11th, 1991, three days before Principal Charming was first aired. If you'd like to give us the Spanish exposition, you can tweet us at underscore retrospecticus. Don't forget the underscore, because we certainly can't. Or send us an email to podcast at retrospecticus.org. So back we go to February 14, 1991. But Gareth, I hear you cry. What Arden Swain's boudoir crooning was at number one in the UK for this, the lovingest day of the year? Barry White? Wet, wet, wet? Dumpy's Rusty Nuts? No, it's Do the Bartman. I told you that in the last episode. Mm-hmm. God. Yep. And with the KLF still hanging on at number two, we're down to number three. And it's Nomad featuring MC Mikey Freedom with I Want to Give You Devotion. And I think it's fair to say that anyone alive in the UK at that stage and probably the US, where this also hit number one in the dance chart, is likely to recognise the song, but probably not the artist. So let's pull back the curtain and let the players be known. All Wikipedia, so citation needed. (laughs) Nomad were a house trio consisting of founder Damon Rochefort, note that Nomad is Damon reversed, Steve McCutcheon and Sharon D. Clark. Despite this track's iconic status to househeads, Nomad only had one more hit, just a groove which got to number 16. But there's some fascinating post-Nomad career moves going on here, so let's skip straight to those. Damon Rochefort went on to write and produce songs for such none more 90s acts as Michelle Gale, Latoya Jackson, and Bad Boys Inc. Wow. Before going into script writing, including a stint on Coronation Street, which included Deirdre Barlow's funeral. Oh, uh, spoiler for anyone who's about 20 years behind in Coronation Street. <laughs> Sharon D. Clark had done some acting prior to Nomad, and continued after, with repeat appearances in Casualty, Holby City, that, that whole Holby-verse, essentially. But unbeknownst to me before researching this podcast, she also had a pivotal role that I'm very familiar with. That of Grace in the Doctor Who episode, The Woman Who Fell to Earth, and two other episodes in Jodie Whittaker's excellent debut series as The Doctor. And if anyone's out there going, not my doctor, not my doctor, just fuck off. Okay? Fuck off. I'm sick of the lot of you. <laughs> Fair enough. I should say that we are both kind of angry today uh, because we are recording today on August the 28th, 2019, 
a day which will live in infamy because as part of the ongoing catastrophe that is the Brexit saga, Boris Johnson has asked the Queen to prorogue Parliament, which means that Parliament is going to shut down for about four weeks and only reopen again two weeks before the Brexit deadline, which is October the 31st. And it's a direct affront to democracy and pretty much the beginnings of a tin pot dictatorship. Yeah, it's at worst going to be the end of any trust in politicians and therefore the breaking of democracy in this country. Yeah. And the the mere fact that the Queen, and I hate the royal family in the first (laughs) place, but that the Queen is involved in this as well. It just shows what an outdated, antiquated idiot system we have mm. republic now <laughs> yeah we are both furious and personally i'm feeling a, a little powerless being on a small island with uh, with with a bunch of tories yeah so should, should we try and cheer ourselves up by talking about this fun show from 1991 well we can do but i haven't told you about mc mikey freedom yet oh okay So Mikey Freedom still seems to be going strong as well. Described as a dedicated dad and musician, and also a huge Bristol City fan and qualified junior football coach. Do you see? That's what a pro I am. I just turned that on. (laughs) Turned it on its head. As of 2014, he was presenting a radio show on Bristol Community FM. And, as a footnote, and I mean just prepare to be massively underwhelmed here. Steve McCutcheon is now better known as Steve Mack. Co-writer and producer of only four number one singles for Westlife and more recently Ed Sheeran's massive number one single The Shape of You oh that's depressing so we all know who had the best post-Nomad career don't we yes it's Sharon D. Clarke who's been in Doctor Who yeah yeah returning to the episode the US viewership had a Nielsen of 14.1 which is equivalent to 13 million households highest rated Fox show and 32nd in the ratings for the week the production number was 7F15, which is a skip of one episode, and we'll explain that when we get to 7F14. There's not much interesting about them for this season, so I've got to, got to try and get some uh, uncertainty in there wherever I can. Okay, I can guess why it was moved. <laughs> the writer was David M. Stern, as we discussed relatively recently in episode 14, Transnistria Gets an F. Mm-hmm. He's, he's not as fun, it's not as fun to say his name as Steve Papoon. no. I, c- I couldn't stop saying that all last week. Papoon. I wish we could go back to Steve Papoon, but I, I, I do believe he doesn't actually write any more episodes, which is uh, just a massive got, disappointment. Got to get them in now, then. I'm going to miss Steve Papoon. <laughs> Papoon. I'm sure there was a, I'm sure there was a Super Nintendo game that was called Papoon or something like that. We'll have to look into a, that. A, yeah. l- a little puzzle game with sort of blobby things that you stack up. Hmm. Papoon. Yeah. Well, if anyone knows the Super Nintendo game Papoon or something similar sounding, then do drop us an eel or a, or a tweet. Yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, I'd genuinely be interested to know, because that's ringing the bell for me as well. Yeah, exactly. Was there a little Super Nintendo game called Papoon? Papoon. Sorry, I've got to stop saying that. <laughs> the chalkboard gag was, I will not belch the national anthem. And the couch gag was, the couch springs out like a bed. Uh So probably a sofa bed then. Uh, But what happens? Well, we begin with Barney excitedly relating his experience at Greasy Joe's bottomless barbecue pit to Homer, 
leading Homer to break his six servings of pork a week rule and call out his less-than-human finger arrangement. But what to do with the kids? Dump them on the in-laws, of course, which in this case takes the form of Patty and Selma. They have a wedding to attend, but they're more than happy to sack it off early and babysit. And in an odd twist in retrospect, Patty denies a driving licence to a future date of Selma's just after this exchange. Speaking of Selma, the wedding gives her an it-could-have-been-me moment, as she recalls Patty scaring the groom off at lunch, causing him to meet his future wife that very break time. It is therefore a very melancholy Selma that puts Lisa to bed that night, before begging Marge to help her find the husband. Marge somewhat unwisely delegates this to Homer, by virtue of a promise made when she let him derail a family vacation to see a car shaped like a bowling pin. Homer goes full-on cyborg in his search for someone honest, caring, well-off and handsome. In other words, someone better than him. And he goes through a fair few possibilities, but Tom, can you remember who or what he scans in this little sequence? Uh, he scans Carl. Too handsome. Smithers, who's a jerk. Yep. And Mrs. What's-A-Face, who's not a man. Yeah, Miss Finch. Miss Finch. Uh, ironically, he'd have been onto something there as things turn out. And then... Oh, yeah. And then to the shop. Uh, to the shop, while he scans Apu. Yep. And outside he scans a complete stranger. Yes, yes. So Apu's uh, pro was discounted snack treats, his con dangerous profession. Uh, and I've got written here a random male presenting person walking past. Pro, nice stride, con, complete stranger. And to complete the set, a cowboy on an advert for cigarettes. <laughs> pro, smoker, con, just a sign. <laughs> so then we get a break as Homer hits up Moe's. But meanwhile... Bart has written his name in 40-foot-high letters on the school field using sodium tetrasulfate, which I think is fictional, at least as far as I can make out. Hard science isn't exactly my school, but from my limited research, I'm told it's impossible for sodium to bond in that way. Now, if anybody knows better than me, more than happy, more than happy to receive eels on this one. Usually I say I don't care, but this is something I would actually be interested to learn. Well, I, I, I have a degree in biochemistry so uh, I think I need to <laughs> I think I need to google that Excellent. Um, uh, I, th I think you're right I don't think sodium tetrasulfate exists sodium tetrasulfide does yes because I got that essentially for all of my results when I was googling yes um, tetrasulfate which led me to google the question does it exist and it was listed as a fictional herbicide and a little bit more digging showed somebody else asking the question and being told that sodium doesn't bond that way. Yeah, they've done a very good job there because I'm sure in the States, just as there are here, there would have been rules regarding what you can and can't have in TV shows in terms of dangerous chemicals because you don't want to go and give anyone ideas. So I'm a massive fan of uh, the works of Chris Morris, and he did a film about jihadi terrorists called Four Lions. And there's a scene where they've got uh, some bleach on the boil and they're making a chemical whose name I can't remember. If you Google sort of explosive bleach boil, you get what it is. And it's, and it's got the nickname Mother of Satan, which is a good nickname for a chemical. So yeah, they've come up with something that sort of sounds plausible to a layperson. But yes, uh, uh, sulfate and sulfide are completely different. Sulfate is an ion which 
uh, involves sulfur and oxygen, and sulfide is just sulfur. So yeah, and yeah, they bond. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. They bond completely differently. Well, so knock me down with a feather. I've actually successfully researched something. Uh, yeah, in, yeah, in the yeah. biochemical field. Yeah, but it's but it but it's but it's some good it's some good pseudoscience-y, pseudoscience in a good way. Yeah, uh, writing from the from Simpsons, the, and it, and it's the uh, most intelligent sciencey thing I've seen them write since the Staphylococci virus. Of course, yes, that classic. Mm-hmm. So um, right, well there we go. That's that's how <laughs> sodium doesn't bond, listeners. That's right. Um, so, um, good night. If you'd like to follow us on... No, we'll, uh, we'll carry on for now. Um, anyway, it's one of Bart's stupider crimes from an anonymity perspective, and he's forced to phone Moe's to summon Homer, giving us our first crank call for a while, as he asks for a homosexual. Hasn't aged well, that one. No. Moe's response is, as always, gold. You rotten liver pot. If I ever get a hold of you, I'll sink my teeth into your cheek and rip your face off. Fantastic. That's good. Some good basic barbary there. Homer then gets his chance to scan his final target, Principal Skinner. Can you remember the pros and cons for Skinner? Uh, his pros are, it's something like, oh, hates the boy. Mm. Uh, well-dressed, well-presented, something like that. Yeah. Can't remember the third one. But his con is a possible homosexual. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's uses big words, dislikes the boy, which might be my line of the episode, even though it's only written. Uh, and I think well-groomed is the third Ah, one, right, yeah. Um, but yeah, partial credit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, Pepsi. On learning that he is unmarried and heterosexual, Homer arranges a dinner at the Simpson house to introduce Seymour to Selma. But due to his standard oafishness, accidentally puts Patty on Skinner's radar by getting the two mixed up. Selma encourages Patty to go on a date with him, and our two plots connect, as Seymour lets Bart off of resodding the field in return for some inside information on Patty. Following an initial date at Springfield's revolving restaurant, bit of a crude joke there, they were in the sit-and-rotate room, and the cinema for Space Mutants 5, which seems to be set in Australia for no apparent reason. <laughs> um, that day ends in physical assault. But things look up for the couple, and Seymour moves straight to popping the question. There is a bit of a montage, so I'm assuming we missed some dates in the middle. But not many, by the looks of it. And Bart begins to enjoy better privileges as a blinder eye is turned his way. Meanwhile, a desperate Selma accepts a date with Barney. Which, of course, takes place at Moe's, where Homer is making happy hour bitterly ironic. And Selma plans to give away her love like cheap wine, which would certainly be a plus for Barney. Seymour takes Patty to the top of the school's essentially never seen again bell tower, where he has burned the words, marry me, Patty, into the field <laughs> with a fictional herbicide. <laughs> but Patty says no, citing that being one half of twins means she can't leave Selma behind by marrying Seymour. Not that this will later put Selma off of several marriages, but hey, who are we to complain? She rescues Selma from Barney and they go off for pancakes, and we are left with Bart resodding an entirely bare field, given that Seymour's attention is now firmly back on his beloved elementary school. So, firstly, enjoyed that more than I was expecting. Mm-hmm. Secondly, I think this is the first episode of The Simpsons ever that concentrates more on characters outside of the core Simpson household than it does on the Simpson family themselves. Mm-hmm. Yep, fair comment. 
So there is a fair bit of Homer in this one as he tries to find Selma a date, and Bart is somewhat necessarily included as Skinner's nemesis. But it's a novelty at this stage to come across an episode that isn't about a core Simpson family matter. Uh-huh. And it's also our first proper look at Patty and Selma as anything but one-note antagonists for Homer. We're starting to get a feel for their somewhat stagnant lives, although their MacGyver obsession is yet to be explored in depth. Also, spoilers, Patty is gay, which makes all of this a bit odd in the first place. She is described as having chosen a life of celibacy in this episode, which does sound like the kind of excuse you might give your family in less enlightened times. Mm, yeah. Whilst it's hinted at frequently, we won't discover Patty's sexuality officially for a hell of a long time with it being all but confirmed in Season 13, Episode 9, Jaws Wired Shut, where both she and Smithers appeared in a pride parade, albeit in closets on the back of a float. And finally confirmed in Season 16, Episode 10, There's Something About Marrying, where she approached Homer to officiate her wedding to a woman, who turned out to be a man in disguise, because comedy. Mm, Yeah. One step forward, two steps back, eh? Yeah, yeah, well, it was just a... It just nicely illustrates different attitudes to sexuality that existed in those different times. So, 1991, I don't think you could straight up say that a character was gay. No. Especially not in a primetime family show, because heaven forfend. Uh, I think Section 28 was still on the books in the UK. Quite possibly, in yeah. And we've had this already this season, haven't we, with Carl in Simpson and Delilah. We have indeed, yeah, because Carl is, they don't explicitly say that he's gay, but uh, he smacks Homer on the arse and gives him a kiss. Mm. So, uh, yeah, yeah, you could you could get away with that. But later on, season 16, so what year are we talking there about? Early, early noughties, maybe? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah, you you could have a character that was gay, that, that just stopped being a big deal. I don't know exactly when that was legislated for or if it was a sort of gradual thing. But yeah, in 1991, you couldn't say this character is gay. Early noughties, you could. So, yeah. Sad to say, The Simpsons often deals with this kind of thing um, quite clunkily. Mm. Um, And yet there's the episode Homer's Phobia, which does nail it a bit more, albeit by introducing homophobia as a character trait in Homer, which is not necessarily ever referenced before or after it's like he he is because he has to be because it's it's convenient for that episode yeah yeah that's yeah that's the premise of that episode Mm. it's quite an interesting one to look at socially actually yeah anyway before we uh, we drift (laughs) off into our own thoughts shall we have a look at some character debuts because there's a ton of them yeah 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 groundskeeper willie hans mole man and the squeaky voice team all voiced by Dan Castellaneta, would you believe? Dr. William McDougall. Yes, apparently he's a doctor. No, I don't remember how that happened. Was said to hail from Glasgow, but supported Aberdeen FC. Yeah. More recently, though, in season 23, episode 13, The Daughter Also Rises, groundskeeper Willie, for it is he, <laughs> was revealed to be from Kirkwall in the Orkney Islands. And that seems to be canon now. God. Okay, so... In another retcon, his father was originally said to be dead, but he'll later meet both of his parents when he, Homer, and Mr Burns go to Loch Ness in Season 10, Episode 21, Monty Can't Buy Me Love. Yes, yes. Of course they go to Loch Ness on 
McHaggis me Sporran Airlines or something. And, yes. Uh, something they, along those and, lines. And they eat kilts for breakfast, yes. His other relations include his cousin Seamus and gravedigger Billy. Willie is a drunken, swearing Scotsman who lives in a shack on the grounds of Springfield Elementary School. Despite obvious malnourishment and hard living, he is surprisingly ripped, as we'll first see in Season 3, Episode 13, Radio Bart. Possibly this is the physique you get when you regularly fight wolves. <laughs> He's also agile, as when greased up he can outrun a greyhound in an air duct. Like most long-running ancillary characters, he has his own focus episode. Season 17, Episode 12, My Fair Laddie, where Lisa bets Bart that she can pass him off as a member of high society. And like most focus episodes for ancillary characters, it's not very good. <laughs> now, it's impossible for me to think of Willie as anything but a Scotsman. But originally, the only direction given was that they needed an angry janitor. <laughs> what? With Castellaneta low on inspiration, Sam Simon suggested an accent. Well, it worked so well with Arpu. <laughs> and having worked through Spanish and Swedish... The third time was the charm. What? This is bizarre. And how lucky we are, or we'd have been robbed of Scotch-toberfest. Wait a minute. There's no such thing <laughs> as Scotch-toberfest. You used me, Skinner! <laughs> you used me! They missed a trick there. They should have called it Jocktoberfest. That's much better. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Willie also has some great showings in some of the Treehouse of Horrors episodes. Whether aping Freddy Krueger in the Treehouse of Horror 6 segment, Nightmare on Evergreen Terrace, or simply getting killed with an axe in every single segment of Treehouse of Horror 5. On to Hans Molman. Or Ralph Mellish, as his driving license names him in this episode. Oh, I missed that. Yeah, that's apparently a Monty Python reference. Oh, okay. Again, eels, if anybody wants to explain that to me. Yeah, no idea. Um, he is an incredibly short sighted man due to his cataracts. And much physical comedy is mined from both this and his extreme misfortune. Like many of Springfield's denizens, his age is whatever age it needs to be to be funny. His driver's license here puts him at 69 years old at the time of the episode. But he also announces that he is only 31 in Season 4, Episode 16, Duffless, attributing his aged appearance to heavy drinking. He can't be that age anymore, though, as a younger version of him from the time when he was mayor of Springfield, no less, Ugh. is seen in season 26, episode 13, Walking Big and Tall. Mm -hmm. His misfortunes and apparent deaths are always funny, but as there's not much to the character, I figured we'd pad out this episode by rolling out our favourite Mole Man moments. <laughs> I think mine is when he's working as a janitor at the nuclear plant and an ethered up Mr Burns drills into his brain, <laughs> believing him to be the lucky child leprechaun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, and he goes, ow, my brains. <laughs> my favourite one is, it's one of the Treehouse of Horror ones where they're doing a Twilight Zone episode, the one with the gremlin on the side of the bus. Yeah. And Bart says to Otto, you've got to do something, there's a gremlin on the side of the bus, and it's Hans Ballman driving a little gremlin car. <laughs> Otto shoves him off the road. And, and he goes, oh no, I just made my last payment. And he very slowly rolls to a stop and then lets out a little, oh, before the car inexplicably explodes. 
They were very, very good at random explosions back then. Now, obviously, I, I can't, um, I can't criticise because I've gone for something that isn't this either. But isn't it odd that neither of us went for football in the groin? Football in the groin is a classic, but it's it's very simple. Yeah, yeah. Football in the groin had football in the groin. That's it. So finally, we've got the squeaky-voiced team, actually called Jeremy Friedman. Well, sort of. He's called Jeremy by Seymour Skinner in a deleted scene from season five. And Friedman is the surname of Lunch Lady Doris, who is shown to be his mother in a throwaway joke. Oh, right. However, in later episodes, he's apparently both shown with a nameplate that says Steve, throwing Jeremy into doubt, and is separately referred to as Mr. Peterson by Abe Simpson, who briefly <laughs> works for him in season five, episode 14, Lisa versus Malibu Stacy. So I think we're looking at a, a procession of squeaky-voiced teens. Yeah, I, I always took him to be several people. So whatever he's called, and whenever he appears, he's a greasy teenager, often seen in menial jobs or positions of petty power, and does not seem comfortable or competent in any of them. He is, in that respect, a greatly relatable character for a good many people. I've certainly experienced being out of my depth as a youngster in bizarre workplace situations, and I'd imagine many, many others have. Uh, yeah, I've certainly got my own squeaky voice teen stories. I used to work in a fruit and veg department of Sainsbury's, and a teacher came up to me and said, I've got this book, and it's got like all different fruit in it, and I want one of each fruit to show to the children I teach. Uh, okay, the first one is a banana, a monkey with a banana. And I just went, okay, I can do that. Um, and then ones afterwards, like papayas and guavas, I had no idea what they were. So I was just going to go, oh, I'll just check with the manager. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Peterson, it's happening again. <laughs> <sighs> So, yeah, and I'm sure some of our listeners... It, in fact, this is turning into quite the interactive episode, but if you've got any squeaky-voiced teen revelations, mm -hmm. throw them our way. And maybe we'll read them out next time. <laughs> or maybe we won't. Yeah. Depends how we feel, really. Did you know, Tom, there are a fair few movie references here? Oh, yes. So, Homer's cyborg-like vision is a reference to similar scenes from the absolutely awesome, they don't make them like that anymore... Never should have had a third sequel or a reboot movie, The Terminator, unless it's a reference to similar scenes from the absolutely awesome, they don't make them like that anymore, <laughs> never should have had a third sequel or reboot movie, Robocop. Oh, okay, yeah. Wikipedia also floated Westworld for this, but that doesn't fit into my joke because everyone likes that reboot, so <laughs> go suck a lemon. The Bell Tower gives us references to The Hunchback of Notre Dame when Seymour carries Patty up the tower. Uh, and Vertigo earlier on, apparently I've never seen either, but it all sounds perfectly cromulent to me. It does, but it's one of the most pointless movie references ever. He, he, he's going up a tower, and he looks down, and they recreate the bit from Vertigo. And that's it. Wh why? <laughs> it, it's not funny, it doesn't add anything to it. Someone just went, hey, tower, Vertigo, yeah. <laughs> Beca Weird. Because it's there. It's the, yeah. old, it's the old mountain climbing excuse, isn't it? <laughs> The line, Good Night, Sweet Principal, appears to be a reference to the William Shakespeare film The Lion King. <laughs> and the line, Tomorrow is another school day, is of course lifted, almost verbatim, from Gone with the Wind. And finally, prepare to have your mind blown. There is, or at least was, 
An actual car shaped like a bowling pin. <laughs> really? Yep. It's even in the quoted location, the International Bowling Museum and Hall of Fame in St. Louis. Wow. Which has, or at least had, recent news is quite thin on the ground, a car crafted on the chassis of a 1936 Studebaker that was used to publicise a bowling alley in Ohio. Wow. Now, I've seen what purports to be a photo of it, and the design is that of a pin lying down rather than one standing up, as seen in the photo that Homer has by his bed. That would make more sense. Loads more sense from a car engineering standpoint. Aerodynamic, mm-hmm. you know, all, all that kind of stuff. Can't take it for a tunnel. So there we go. I'm quite proud of that that last fact, actually. That's, that's one of the best ones I've scrounged up thus far. That's really good, because I, I assume that they just made that up. Remember when we went to the car that was shaped like a bowling pin in... Pick a place on the map. St. Louis, that'll do. There you go. But that's, a, that's a real thing. That's, that's some impressive research on their part as well. Yeah. And now it's time for Tom to tell us all about something else improbable that uh, existed. Yeah, kind of, kind of. I really need to sort out a join between the Simpsons bit and the history bit. I'll try, I'll try and put something together for next show. Okay. Keep an eye out for that. <laughs> so... I'm going to be talking about the United Nations Unrepresented Nations and Peoples Organisation, or UNPO for short. So what is it? What's its history? And why does it exist? It exists to represent people who feel they have a lack of representation in the countries in which they live. So let me give you an example of what I'm talking about here. So it's easy to think of the world and the countries in it as being black and white. So I've just been to France, and what France is, is pretty well defined. So it's got borders, elected representatives, and uh, language. It's also got a seat at the UN. So taken together, no one can say that France isn't represented on the international stage. To the east, France shares borders with Belgium, Luxembourg, Germany, Switzerland, and Italy. All of those countries have their own democratic organisations and seats at the UN too. So there are lines drawn in the sand that make it clear where one country starts and another one begins. Although those lines on the ground aren't still obvious because those countries are all in the Schengen area. So, so far, that is all black and white. Yeah. However, I visited the Occitan region of France. Historically, Occitania, also known as Aquitaine... Oh, where Eleanor's from. Exactly, which is probably what people are more familiar with. Uh, It was a region that covered a lot of southern France and bits of Spain. It has a population of 16 million, its own language and culture. Now, there is an Occitan nationalist party, but it's not well supported and calls for independence are fairly muted. The Occitan language and culture is not suppressed, so therefore Occitan hasn't applied for membership of UNPO. Uh, But the same cannot be said for a region where Occitan is an official language, Catalonia. So Catalonia known as Catalunya in the Catalan language. Don't know if you've ever been to Lunya in central Liverpool, but... I certainly have, yes. Yeah, that's, that's where the name Lunya comes from, Catalunya. So it's a region in the northeast of present-day Spain. And its capital is Barcelona, and it's the sixth most populous urban area in the EU. Incidentally, the patron saint of Catalonia is St George, which is why the cross of St George features on the crest of the city and the football team. In recent years, there have been some tumultuous events in Catalonia, with the Catalan government declaring independence following a referendum that Spain declared illegal in 2017. 
The Catalan president, Carles Piedemont, declared Catalan independence shortly afterwards and Spain immediately issued an arrest warrant for him on the grounds of rebellion and sedition. And he's currently hiding from the Spanish authorities in Belgium. He was picked up in Germany not that long ago, but Germany didn't recognise the idea of rebellion, so they released him. So he just he just hangs around in Belgium now. Okay. Well, good beer. Mm-hmm. Yep. So because the people of Catalonia feel that they are not properly represented on the international stage, they are perfect candidates to be members of UNPO. So what qualifying criteria does UNPO have? To be a member, the people's represented have to abide by the UNPO covenant, which was last updated in 2018. In short, they need to abide by the following five principles. Number one, self-determination. This involves recognising that all peoples have the right to self-determination, to make their own decisions and not have their fates determined by other peoples. This may sound obvious, but the idea is that members won't try and impose their wills on others. Number two is human rights. So all members must abide by the terms set out on the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Number three is democracy. So all members must adhere to the ideals of democracy and reject notions such as totalitarianism and uh, proroguing parliament to get a no-deal Brexit through. (sighs) Number four is non-violence. So the UNPO is inspired by Mahatma Gandhi and all members are expected to press their cases in a non-violent manner. And number five is the environment. This may sound like a bit of a weird one, but all members are required to commit to protecting their natural environments. Are all members of the UN meant to commit to that? Because some of them aren't doing a very good job. No, they're not. They're not. I don't think they are. I, th- I, I think if you're a nation, that just comes with that just comes with it. Mm. So, of course, these criteria exclude some potential members from entering the organisation. One such entity is the state of Transnistria, whom we discussed in detail in episode 14, Transnistria Gets an F. And we've mentioned that twice now. We have. So you should go back and listen to that. Mm-hmm. So Transnistria's human rights record is appalling, so its chances of joining UNPO are slim to none. So now that we've got an idea of what UNPO does, let's have a look at its history. So let's start with a general overview of what the world was like politically in February 1991. As you'll know if you've been keeping up with this podcast, the late 80s and early 90s saw seismic changes in Europe. Since the end of the Second World War, the continent was very much divided by an iron curtain between the USA-allied NATO countries in the West and the Soviet-allied Warsaw Pact countries in the East. Many of the countries in the East were nominally independent, but due to the Soviet Union's Brezhnev Doctrine, they couldn't deviate too far from communism, or the Soviets would invade. By 1991, the great reformer Mikhail Gorbachev had been in power for five years, and things were changing. Romania had removed their dictator Nicolae Ceausescu, executing him and his wife by firing squad on Christmas Day 1989. See our first proper episode, Simpsons Roasting on the Romanian Revolution, for more on that. But don't listen to the pilot. Yes, while you're there, don't listen to the pilot. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We cannot stress this enough. Yes. In Germany, the Berlin Wall had fallen and Germany had unified, as covered in episode 11, the crepes of Lofar de Mezier. In Poland, the communist government had fallen and been replaced by Lech Walesa's Solidarity. See episode 22, Itch and Scratchy and the Polish Government in Exile, for more on that one. And by February 1991, the Soviet Union still existed, but it was beginning to fall apart. In the Baltic states, the Singing Revolution, once again, see episode 12, Krusty gets the Singing Revolution, was in full swing. And Latvia, Lithuania and Estonia were just months from independence. 
No surprises, then, that the Baltic states were all founder members of UNPO, and that the independence leaders played a pivotal role in its inception. Other founding members that were in the Soviet Union included Georgia, Armenia, but not Azerbaijan, weirdly enough, Tatarstan, and the Crimean Tatars. UNPO was founded in The Hague, Netherlands, called Den Haag in Dutch, as in FC Den Haag, the football team. Oh, right, okay. Mm-hmm. A key influence in its pacifism and non-violence was the 14th Dalai Lama, who is still alive today at the age of 84. Tibet was a founding member, and Tibet's struggle for independence from China is well known. Tibet rebelled against the rule of the Chinese Qing dynasty in 1912, before declaring itself a republic. During the Chinese Civil War, Tibet was forcibly incorporated into the Communist People's Republic of China in 1951, and PRC control was cemented in 1959 following a failed uprising. Since then, Tibet has suffered immensely under the horrors of Chairman Mao's Great Leap Forward and cultural revolutions, and the Tibetan leaders formed a government in exile in Dharamsala, India, headed by the Dalai Lama. So initially, UNPO had 13 members, and each one is a can of worms with a fascinating story. Well, I mean, every member is, but... so. So the original members were as follows. The Aboriginals of Australia, Armenia, Cordillera, Georgia, the Greek minority in Albania, Iraqi Kurdistan, Latvia, Palau, Tatarstan, the Crimean Tatars, East Turkestan, Taiwan and Tibet. And I'm going to try and keep this section to 20 minutes. I'm going to have to try and be selective. Unfortunately, there's no Japanese culture to get us sidetracked. However, I will be mentioning Japan. As well as Tibet, another Asian founding member is Taiwan. Now, Taiwan may well be famous for manufacturing and exporting consumer goods like TVs, but internationally it's existed in this weird state of limbo for decades, so I think I'll indulge myself and go over that here. So Taiwan is an island that lies to the east of mainland China. For centuries it was a province of China, before the First Sino-Japanese War saw it ceded to Japan in 1895 and the Japanese and Europeans called it Formosa. After Japan surrendered at the end of the Second World War in 1945, the Chinese Civil War resumed between the Kuomintang, led by Chiang Kai-shek, and the Communists, led by Chairman Mao Zedong. The Kuomintang had strong fortifications in Taiwan, and after they lost the mainland war to the Communists, they held out in Taiwan, and kind of do so until this day. The two sides still claim Taiwan, which is where the legal limbo and Taiwan's lack of international recognition comes from. The People's Republic of China sees it as part of their territory, and other countries dare not recognise it for fear of upsetting China, which is, which is of course, a modern-day superpower. Also, the Chinese aren't even keen on the name Taiwan being used internationally, so in international arenas such as sporting events, Taiwan competes as Chinese Taipei. Oh, I wondered who they were. Yeah, yeah. So if in you know, a tennis tournament or Olympics or football or whatever, if you see Chinese Taipei, that's Taiwan. Uh, because it's a name that China are happy with. Uh, Taipei being a city in Taiwan. And it's got that Chinese uh, in front of it. So China are going, yeah, yeah, it's Chinese. It's got the name Chinese in it. It's, of, course, of course it's Chinese. It's ours. So yeah. So Taiwan was a founding member of UNPO, and it looks like it will be a member for some time to come. Mm -hmm. 
Taiwan has a huge army relative to its size. No one really wants to spark a war between Taiwan and mainland China because it would, you know, it would lead to a huge amount of death and there wouldn't really be a clear winner for a while. So, yeah, they're just sort of leaving it, really. They're just sort of sat there. Okay, so the next UNPO founding member I want to mention is Iraqi Kurdistan. It's one of the nice things about talking about UNPO. You get to talk about places from all over the world. So when UNPO was founded, the Iraq War was still going on. In the north of Iraq is a region called Kurdistan, an autonomous region that fell victim to Saddam Hussein's Anfal campaign, which included the chemical attack on Halabja in September 1988, which saw thousands of people killed. Kurdistan also covers regions of modern-day Turkey, Iran and Syria, with armed Kurdish groups being in conflict with forces from those countries over the years. Nowadays, the whole Kurdish situation is kind of up in the air. In 2017, Iraqi Kurdistan held a non-legally binding referendum on independence, which received a 93% yes vote. However, the plan is to slowly negotiate independence with Iraq, rather than unilaterally declare independence and risk further fighting. So despite this, Iraqi Kurdistan actually left UNPO in 2015, although Iranian Kurdistan remains a member. Okay, so did Iranian Kurdistan join later then? Yes. Because I don't think they were in your list, were they? Yes, that's right. They joined later, yeah. Okay. So membership is not limited to distinctly defined regions. So as the name suggests, unrepresented peoples can also join, provided that there is someone to represent them. Therefore, the last founding members that I want to talk about are the Aboriginals of Australia. The term Aboriginal, in the Australian sense, refers to any people who were living in Australia before European settlers showed up. Estimates for the length of human habitation of Australia vary, but they are in the range of tens of thousands of years ago. As was the case for most native peoples, European, and especially British, colonisation was terrible for the Aboriginals of Australia. The British brought them with diseases, and thousands of Aboriginals died from measles, tuberculosis and smallpox. Thousands of Aboriginals were killed by white settlers in the frontier wars. The Australian government attempted to civilise Aboriginals with one white parent by forcibly removing from their Aboriginal families a topic covered in the excellent film Rabbit Proof Fence. Their exploitation continued throughout the 19th and 20th centuries, with the government only granting them the right to vote in 1962. The Aboriginals of Australia ceased to be members of UNPO in 2012 following the repeal of discriminatory Australian laws. Over the years, members of UNPO have come and gone. Members join when they are unrepresented and leave when they gain the representation they are after. In the case of the former Soviet countries, this is straightforward independence. In some ways, it feels that UNPO is a stepping stone to independence, as if it's a qualifying round for a sporting event like the World Cup or something. So shortly after joining, all three of the Baltic states and a few other former Soviet republics gained their independence and therefore left. Currently, there are 40 members of UNPO. Apart from the founders I've already mentioned, they are Abkhazia, a tiny territory on the Georgian border that was involved in a 2008 war between Russia and Georgia. There's Aceh, a province of Indonesia with its capital of Banda Aceh. Afrikaners, the descendants of mostly Dutch settlers in southern Africa, and they joined in 2008. Now, I find their membership absolutely fascinating because they, they are white South Africans of Dutch origin. They're the sort of people who would have fought in the Boer Wars, and they are part of the white minority which ran South Africa during the apartheid years. 
and they're now represented at the underrepresented people's organisation. It does seem odd, but you know, under the rules, I suppose if they if they can get in, they can get in. Mm-hmm. Then there's the Awazi from southwest Iran. There's the Ambazonia, a region of Cameroon that declared itself independent in 2017, which I completely missed. That just completely went under my radar. There's Assyria, a Christian peoples who come from the Middle East. Balochistan, one of the provinces of Pakistan. Barotsiland, a region of southern Africa. Batwa, a people from the Great Lake region of Africa. The Bella people from West Africa. Brittany, the region of northwest France. Ah. You ever been to Brittany on a school trip to learn about the D-Day landings? Can't say I have. Uh, I certainly didn't realise that they were an, an unrepresented people. They are, they are. They, 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 uh, yeah, there's a strong independence movement there, and they, thought, and they are therefore represented at UNPO. Mm. Uh, there's also Chimeria, which is in modern-day Albania. There's the Chittagong Hill Tracts, a region in the east of Bangladesh. There's the District of Columbia... And this is how far-reaching UNPO is. Wow. So, yeah, because, you know, that's, that's an issue that's gone back for... That's gone back a long, long way in United States history because uh, Washington, D.C. is considered to be a federal territory rather than a state. So it doesn't have the rights that states have. So, and, you know, the situation is so bad that they're actually at UNPO. Wow. Because they're unrepresented. And that's the capital of the United that, States that, of America. That is the capital of the USA in this, in this organisation. Yes. You have blown my mind. Yeah, it's mad, isn't it? So there's also uh, Gilgit-Baltistan, which is an area of northern Pakistan. There's Haratin from North Africa. There's the Hmong people. They're from southern China, Vietnam and Laos. They're an ethnic minority there. Oh, um, as featured in the film Gran Turismo. I'll have to take your word for that. Yeah. It's a, one of Clint Eastwood's uh, later films. Oh, okay. Um, it's actually quite good. All right, okay. Well, there we are. That's that's the Hmong people. Uh, there's the Kabylia, which is the region of Algeria. There's the Khmer Krom, as opposed to the Khmer Rouge, but they're from Vietnam. They're another ethnic minority. There's Lexin from the border regions of Russia and Azerbaijan. There's the Madhasi people of Nepal. There's the Nagalim, who are from Nagaland, which is a region of North India. Uh, there's the Ogaden, which you may remember from a couple of episodes ago, because it's a region of Somalia. Uh, there's the Agoni, which is a region of Nigeria. There's the Oromo, who again, you might remember from a few shows ago. They're from Ethiopia. And I actually stumbled upon um, an Oromo independence rally in Manchester once. I was just just do, doing my shopping one day, and uh, and yeah, they're they're waving all their uh, their flags, which are red and yellow with a tree on it, which of course enticed you towards the gathering. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but I wasn't brave enough to ask. Uh, excuse me, who, who are you people? I I I, I don't recognise all this flag stuff at all. Uh, there's also the Rehoboth Bastards, who are descendants of. The Boas, but they come from Namibia. So, so you know, they're the descendants of white settlers who get represented here. It happens. Uh, there's the Savoy, which is an area of southwest France on the border of Switzerland and Italy. Is that where the cabbage comes from? Quite possibly. Uh, but yeah, uh, House of Savoy, very 
important in you know 16th century 16th 17th century that sort of thing now there's the Sindh which is a region in the southeast of Pakistan there's Somaliland once again Seed Said Barry we was that's a sort of autonomous region of Somalia that used to be British Somaliland there's the South Moluccas a region of what is now Indonesia and there's they've got a government in exile who've been exiled since 1966 there's southern Azerbaijan, southern Mongolia. There's Sulu, not Captain Sulu, but spelt the same way, uh, which are a few islands that are officially part of the Philippines. There's the Talish, a people from the border between Iran and Azerbaijan. There's West Balochistan, a province of Iran. There's West Papau, which is the western half of the island of Papau, as in uh, Papua New Guinea. Um, yeah, the western half, a lot of people there do not want to be part of Indonesia. Yeah, big independence movement there. And finally, there's Western Togoland, which confusingly enough isn't in Togo, it's in Ghana. All of these places will continue to be represented at UNPO until they feel that they have achieved the international representation they deserve. They're from all parts of the world, all over the place, and they all have their own stories to tell, and I can't possibly do them all justice here. So go and check them out. Okay. And of course, uh, joining soon will be new members, Scotland. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, just one question, though, and I think all, all the listeners will be dying to know this as well. Um, is there a flag for the organisation? There is a flag for the organisation. It's quite dull. It's just a white field with the UNPO logo on it. Oh. But pretty much all of the members have their own flags, and they are... You know, it's a huge, colourful array of vexillological delights. Excellent. So, yeah. So, yeah. Check them out. Fantastic. And just in closing, I'd like to say, as a, uh, a slight correction to something I said literally a few minutes ago, Clint Eastwood was in the film Gran Torino, not Gran Turismo. I was going to say, I thought that was a racing game. It's a racing game and the <laughs> Cardigans album. Right. Two things I should have known. So, I have actually... Um, befouled myself after my um, biochemistry win earlier mm. by getting wrong a, a very easy bit of pop culture that I should have known. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. So, I think we'll end before I embarrass myself any further. Mm-hmm. Uh, don't forget you can find us at retrospecticus.org and on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. Uh, you can also find me and Tom protesting outside St George's Hall at some stage, but we'll call it Pokemon Go. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at underscore Retrospecticus, email us at podcast at retrospecticus.org, and check out the number ones playlist on Spotify, although we'll be adding a number three to it this week. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you like what we're doing, please leave us a preferably five-star review anywhere you possibly can, and thank you very much for mm-hmm. listening. We will see you next time if the country hasn't descended into a mess of riots by then. We might see you anyway. <laughs> Goodbye. Bye.